All right, thank you for joining us here on Skiologians. I, I've lost track now of the episodes here. I do know uh, this is... Well, we're recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. That's the job of these shows here, these teaching shows. And so we are going through Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, the book by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And we are on Chapter 3, which is titled Male Equality and Male Headship, uh, an essay on Genesis 1-3 to by Raymond Ortland Jr. So uh, if, you're, if you're catching up to this book here, obviously it's edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Um, and Grudem is the guy I'm going through his systematic theology right now. It's really approachable and, and comfortable to read. Uh, it is like 2,000 pages long, but so are probably most systematic theology. So it's, it's a great start. I think um, having gone through it now, I feel like if you're someone who you know, feels called to study doctrine more deeply, uh, it, it seems to be a really good resource to begin with because it it explains things in a way that's understandable. And then in addition to that, it's well organized and has a good uh, bibliography, you know. And then it's also set up in a way you could do like as a devotional because he's got worship songs uh, at the end, you know, to sing Bible verses. So it's not that bad to like take a chapter, which is maybe 12 to 15 pages on a topic, spend a week reading through it and uh, in, in your morning devotional time, that's sort of been my strategy. I was in a really good, really good habit of doing just that book back right when I got it. Um, now I've been focusing more on my time on this book. But anyway, that's Grudem. Piper, of course, you know, he is the uh, well-known author, pastor, Bethel Church, I think, Minneapolis, Minnesota-based. Uh, and if you ever have heard him preach, or have read any of his stuff, you know how he has a way of being so solid theologically and yet so gentle and yet so poetic with his words. So that's why I bought this book was literally just the topic and the two authors. <laughs> no one recommended it to me. It was the topic and how relevant it is. And then the authors and me knowing that they were sound and interesting and able to be read. But this chapter and some of the other chapters, they're written by other people, um, other pastors, other theologians. So I'm not familiar with Raymond Ortland Jr. That's probably my fault. So that probably doesn't mean anything that I wouldn't be familiar with him. But today we're going to break down his essay, diving into this topic. So again, it's titled Male, Female Equality, and Male Headship. This is a very well-organized essay. It's about 15 pages. The chapter is, yeah, about, it's not that long. It goes from page 95 to 112. It's very well-organized. It looks to exegete Genesis 1 to 3 in order to present a biblical view of male-female relationships and male headship. So those kind of two things, I guess I should say male-female equality and male headship. Those are the two focus points. He believes that if you look at Genesis 1 to 3, however you look at it, however you interpret these critical first three chapters of the Bible, that is how you are going to determine your position in regards to the rest of this conversation. Um, and so, you know, in his words, so go Genesis 1 to 3, so goes the whole biblical debate. Um, and, and they have to be interpreted consistently with these chapters. So if you, after, after going through chapter two, by the way, if you're kind of following along with this book with me, you're probably really relieved after reading chapter three. Chapter two was really long. It was question answer format, kind of more like one of those chapters you might like go back and scan for certain questions if you're troubled. This one just was like, 
so nicely put together. And definitely when I was thinking about how am I going to do a show on this chapter, I was like, I'd probably better just read the entire thing. Like that's going to be probably more beneficial for some of my audience. But we're going to be trusting that you are following along with us with the with the book. And if you aren't, um, that that you enjoy my outlines and elaborations on them, I guess. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. The purpose of this essay was to demonstrate again from Genesis 1 to 3 that both male-female equality and male headship, when properly defined, were instituted by God at creation and remain permanent, beneficent aspects of human existence. So he's going to take these three chapters and explain how from those chapters we can take male-female equality, we can define them as being equal, and we can also define male headship. We have to properly define them, but we can determine that they were instituted by God at creation. They weren't instituted at the fall. They were instituted at creation. They're part of his good created order and therefore remain permanent. And because they're part of that created order, that beneficial... uh, and so it was good, right? Chapters 1 and 2, pre-fall, they're beneficial when followed properly. When, f- when we follow God's created order, things actually are beneficial to us. That's probably what, <laughs> side trail here, that's probably one thing that I, you know, coming to grips with a little bit, when you think about the most common misinterpretation of Christianity, it's that it's this like restraining rule book. And I'll be honest, in, a, in our 21st century modern world, I can definitely see how, especially to the young kid or, or the young person, it can seem that way. And then that just festers and develops as they get older too. Because when you're young, like following rules is the hardest part of being a kid. Doing what is right is so hard. No one has to teach us how to misbehave and do the wrong thing. And for some reason, when you're young, that seems really enticing and like what you, we, we want to be doing. And so the idea of following orders from this God that we can't touch and hold and see, and who, by the way, sometimes, you know, we see these injustices going on in the world anyway. So if to the to the kid's perspective, not seeing the whole greater picture, we're like, well, it doesn't even seem like God, God might not even be real. You're telling me I have to follow his rules. It doesn't even seem like he's powerful enough to make, make it so people who follow those rules even succeed. Think about how many of the distortions are in that, that one statement and that one sentiment. We don't have to dive into it now, but basically that concept of when we uh, when we don't when, when we do follow God's created order, things actually are beneficial for us. And then it would the next question would be important to define what do you mean by beneficial? Because it's not a guarantee that you will um, find success by the world standards. It's that you're going to be successful and and healthy. We'll just use that word, right? You're going to be well off by God's standards because. God, everything God does does for those whom he loves has a, well, God does everything with a purpose. So all things that happen to uh, a member of the elect are going to be beneficial to that person as well as glorifying to God. There, he's not doing random disservices to us. I was just singing the song, the sovereignty of God song. And one of the greatest lines, right, is like, even in our pain and our suffering, like that has purpose because it's being it's being used to sanctify us. It's being used to glorify God. It's being used to to make us more like Christ. That's the ultimate um, standard for well off. You know, we'll do this and you'll be fine. The ultimate you'll be fine is be, you'll be made more like Christ. 
So that that's maybe how I should have started out that that little rant, <laughs> saying that the the ultimate. Well, if I do that, am I going to be okay? If I do that, am I going to be taken care of? If I do that, am I going to be happy? If I do that, am I going to be well off? If I follow this God and His rules and His created order, will I be well off? Well, the answer to that for the Christian is you'll be made more like Christ. You will be sanctified. Is there something that you want more than that? <laughs> well, I want to be healthy. I want to be rich. I want to be happy. Okay. Well, let me tell you the ultimate happiness. You are the most happy when you are the, when you're most satisfied in God and you're when you're glorifying Him the most. Okay. So important to properly define these things, definitely. Okay. So <clears throat> that was. Uh, oh, the, the next, I guess after that's his purpose, he lays that out. Then he, he goes right into defining what he means. So what do we mean by male-female equality? If You know, he said you can demonstrate that that's part of God's creation. But what do you even mean by male-female equality? Well, um, Ortland defines that as, these are his words, man and woman are equal in the sense that they bear God's image equally. Okay? That is the way that we are equal. We are equal in the sense that, that we bear God's image equally. Male headship is defined as, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. So that first definition is critical. It kind of lays the foundation for the next one as well. We are equal in that we bear God's image. The consequences of that we are equal um, in worth and value. We are equal in our ability to be sanctified, but to be saved, right, and justified. It's not as if God has some sort of bent to save men versus women or the other way around. Um, we are, men don't have to do something extra to be saved or something less than women do to be saved. Okay, none of that. So we are equal um, in that we bear God's image and that gives us that equal value, equal worth. That's an important foundation. Um, and then male headship, it's more has to do with roles. So, uh, and we're going to dive into this more, that equal, equal worth, <clears throat> um, equal worth and different roles and how that can coexist. Basically, your role does not define your worth. And, and later on in this book, in chapter five, we're actually going to touch on the Trinity and how we see uh, that paradoxal, it's not really a paradox, but how those two things can coexist, that the two beings can have equal value, but have different roles. And we see that actually within the economical trinity. The ontological trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. This is just basic, I think. Well, I'll talk through this. Maybe I'm getting this wrong. Ontological trinity, they're all fully God. They're fully equal in their divinity. The economic trinity is talking about the roles of the members of the trinity and how Jesus, God the Son, um, willingly, um, I don't know, I want to be careful with the word I use here, subordinates. That's a, that's like, see that, that can be misconstrued, but but the God the Father is the head of Christ. I, the verse yeah, the Father is the head of Christ. That's in the in the the passage. I think it's Ephesians where it's talking about how um, Christ is the head of the church, right? Man is the head of woman, right? Um, and then it says, and God is the head of Christ. And basically, like 
Jesus followed the marching orders, per se, from God the Father, and that did not make him subordinate to God the Father, or less than him. Um, Anyway, the point being that the members of the Trinity have unique, specific roles, but they are equal in that they are fully God. And while that is a mystery, the Trinity, something that, you know, there's definitely going to be some truths that have to coexist that that can seem hard for us to comprehend that doesn't necessarily make them a true paradox or a true contradiction they can coexist there can actually be uh, not even a tension but just two truths that are coexisting that we might not fully as humans be able to make sense of completely because we are just human so we can't make sense of those two truths completely this isn't nearly as complicated of a concept essentially male and female we're both equal in value and worth we're made in the image of god we are both equal but we can both have completely distinct roles those roles don't define our equality and, and to me this is the essence of the debate and the conversation really okay so um he wants to make out at the beginning or make out he wants to make it clear at the beginning of his essay that he's going to be misunderstood if you uh if male headship is somehow confused with male domination male domination is when the man asserts his will over the woman's will regardless of her spiritual equality regardless of her rights regardless of her value the male headship that we are talking about that the bible talks about is a servant leadership it's it's really quite the opposite it's a laying down often of one's personal desires or selfish desires or selfish needs um, for the betterment of the leadership of the whole team, being the family, the wife, what, what the, your spouse, um, whatever. That's the type of headship and leadership that the Bible appears to have in mind. And so this essay kind of goes through, it has, again, clear organization. The first part we're going to talk about is what did God intend at creation? Number two is going to be what, what did God decree at the fall? And then number three are the concluding remarks. So what did God intend at creation? We have Genesis 1, 26 to 1, 28 that's given to us. And I have my Bible here ready, and I will read that for us here. This is the NIV. It says, starting in 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All right, and so um, Orland kind of, he gives us these three ways in which the glory of man is sort of presented in creation. By glory, I'm not talking about like equal glory of God, just the 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 amazingness really of of what we really are as a creation and we're unique we're not just like the same thing as when god created frogs um so what are those three ways well first he says god in that first section verse 26 it says god says let us make man the point kind of being here that all the other things that were created it said let the earth bring forth and it was by the sheer power of a spoken will that God caused all these living things to emerge. Um, and, and in the creation of man, God himself acted directly and personally. I think I could agree with that as being maybe a, a distinction. We don't want to confuse people and say, so the other things weren't created by God. They were. It's by the power of his spoken word, He just these things just came into being. They were brought forth by the very power of his word. 
But it is interesting how verse 26, it just changes that language. It says, let us make man. You know, it's this is going to be an act, the Trinity coming together. Let us make him. It's, it is a personal thing that is going to be happening here. Um, not him just saying, um, let the earth bring forth man, right? That's interesting. Never caught that. So that was an interesting first point. Second point, um, man was created to bear the image or likeness of God. Um. I think it, this is his words. I think it is probable that the image of God in man is the soul's personal reflection of God's righteous character. To image God is to mirror his holiness. Other interpreters construe the image of God in a more general sense, including human rationality, conscience, creativity, relationships, and everything we are as man. But however, one interprets the image, imago dei, imago dei, am I saying that right? God shared it with man alone. Man is unique, finding his identity upward in God, not downward in the animals. That last, that last statement would come with great resistance from the secular worldview, but that is so true. That is what makes us truly, diff- truly different. We find our identity upward to God, not looking downward at the rest of the creation. We have actually dominion over them. But that, if there was one way that could sum up all of those things that it's almost an innate truth too. Like as a human, even if you don't believe in God, you're like walking around looking at these other creatures and these animals. And you might say like, isn't it amazing? I evolved from this pine cone, uh, you know, not really that, but <laughs> everything evolved from this one thing in a, in the pond scum like that. Like they say it, but, but then, you know, in the very next sentence, when they, when they make some rational statement, some creative statement, something that has to do with conscience, um, ethics, morality, whatever, like it just totally betrays their other previous statement about being evolved from pond scum. It's as if they can recognize that if we were to, that we are closer in relation upwards to a, a holy God than we are if we go down even to an animal that appears closer to us, like a monkey or an ape. You know, it's like there a monkey or an ape is still so far from a human being in so many ways. And and I, I get it like if we when when I say that statement, it's one of those you know what I mean statements. You know? And it's not just surely physical or well they have their own language and form of communication and relationships and all blah blah blah. It's like, okay, fine, that's that's great. I'm glad you discovered that, but on a primate level is where it is. They can't relate to us. We're going to get to that in a second. So that, that third thing, um, we'll, we'll get to that. So I'll wait. The third thing the, of man's greatness, it says here, the special calling to have dominion. Here, here's something, another interesting point. Hadn't, hadn't realized this reading over these verses. I'm sure you've read these verses many, many times. Do you notice in verse 27 um, that Moses shifts from writing prose to poetry? It's it's a visible distinction in your in your Bible as well. You see the verse twenty seven. It's it's read like this. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And Ortland says each of these lines kind of make a make a distinct point. Line one is saying it's a divine creation. We came from God. Line two, um, it it sort of overlaps except. It's, it's essentially saying that we bear a resemblance to God. So that first line, we came from God. God created man in his own image. Second line, in the image of God, he created him. We have this resemblance. And then line three, it boldly affirms the dual sexuality of man. We are male and female. Nowhere else in Genesis 1 is sexuality referred to, but human sexuality superior to animal sexuality merits the simple dignity given it here. 
I'll continue. I, you could tell I'm reading his words now. Further, Mo, further, Moses doubtless intends to imply the equality of the sexes, for both male and female display the glory of God's image with equal brilliance. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is consistent with God's intention, stated in verse 26, that both sexes should rule and let them rule. So, he sort of gives us this special calling, this special calling. Uh, This brings us to a part of the essay that is worth looking at, and it is the idea that God defines the human race, or he, he names the human race man. Why is that? Not Why not say persons, humans, woman? Why say man? And um, the argument here brought forth by Ortland is that, number one, and I would agree with this, that God is purposeful in giving this name. So we can agree to that because we know God has purpose in everything he does. So it's not as if you know, someone could bring him to God someday in heaven. Why, why did you call people man, not woman, or not just something neutral? And he'd be like, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. Sorry, I was just, man was the first thing I created, and then I just kind of went with it. You know, it's like he's not going to give that kind of an answer. There's a purpose, there's an intent here. Um, and what, and I would say the purpose, you know, as Christians searching for, well, how do we know? We got to try and test this against the rest of the whole Bible, right? Systematically determine this. And if we're just trusting Ortland here, what he thinks is, he says that what God is doing here is he's anticipating the male headship that's going to be further fleshed out in chapter two when we talk about marriage. Um, and, and I think that's a, a very worthwhile interpretation here to see that. Uh, again, I, I think it's one of those Maybe you study Genesis further, really look at that and look at those relationships between the chapters, between creation, between marriage, all those things. So perhaps God, his intent and purpose here is is one of of truly deep meaning of suggesting male headship um, for the human race. Not a difference in equality, but of male headship. So there's also in, in here a couple of rebuttals talking about the um, feminist view of um, basically saying that in order to express the image of God, we would need both male and female people. Um, and so that's why there's male and female. Like a male can't express the image of God on his own. And the rebuttal there is one that's not logical. Um, it is not, it's not a logical uh, premise to say that what, what, for example, Spencer writes um, it doesn't flow. The conclusion does not flow from her premise. Basically, she says females as well as males are needed in positions of authority in the church to help people better comprehend God's nature. God's image needs male and female to reflect God more fully. And and again, so saying that was Spencer's statement. The reason that it doesn't work is because um, even if we're true that the image of day would necessarily be incomplete in a single individual, it would not follow that both men and women are needed in positions of church authority to help people better to comprehend God's nature. I'm sorry, so I sort of laid that, I guess, wrong. So their claim is the reason we would have women in authority is to help better people understand God's nature. And so what he's saying is even if that were true, that that the image the image of God can't be perfectly expressed in either man or female, so we need both in positions. It doesn't follow that that would mean we'd want them in church authority. So that that was the illogical premise. But probably the more um, biblical stance of if someone were to say that, like you know, we should have women in places of church authority because you can't even express God's image without a female. We should say, or vice versa, other way. 
to. What then of Genesis 5.1 and chapter 3? And in those verses, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. And Ortland would say, well, God created man in his image. Later, Adam had a son in his image. Implication, Adam, who is in God's image, passed the divine image, though flawed by sin, onto his son, Seth. So the divine image resided in individuals. Uh, that's, I guess, what we would say is my response would be, yeah, no, that's not true. God's image resides equally in, in individuals, both men and women. Okay, the next part, what about what happens at the fall? Actually, wait, I apologize. Before that, we have to do the Genesis 2, 18 through 25. So I'm going to read that section. Got my Bible here. I'm all ready. Look at me. <coughs> here we go. Uh, by the way, if you bounced in here on Shovel Lake Public Radio and you're listening live on Shovel Lake Public Radio, this is Skeelogian. We're talking about recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. If you would like to sponsor us, just send a $1,000 uh, check to 215 Mountain View Drive, Leadville, Colorado, and we will use it to buy some skis because that's probably what we'd use it for. All right, there was my little ad. You'd, you'd, we'd have to spend it on that. We're a ski station. We run... Okay, never mind. Ralph in the back is saying that that was hedonistic of me to bring up in the show. Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Okay, so this next part of the essay was the most powerful part of the essay by far for me. Again, these are all verses that as a Christian, <coughs> and if you're, if you're engaged in this study right now, most likely you've read the Genesis account multiple times, and you, you, you feel like comfortable with it, and it's always amazing how these things get brought out. Um, in really meaningful ways. And I'm going to just read to you um, Ortland's words because it does it better than how I think I would summarize it. Here we go. Basically, sorry, to set this up, what the main point of this is, is that there's a paradox that kind of exists. It's not really a paradox, but what or what Ortland's going to say is, God created male and female in his image equally, but he has also made the male the head and the female the helper. And I kind of have already discussed a little bit my notes on this point that this is misconstrued in our lives. But just to further that, further <laughs> beat that horse. <laughs> sorry, that I shouldn't use that in a Christian show either, Ralph. I'm sorry. Um, 
I would just say, before I read Ortland's words here, I would just say that this is only really a paradox if you consider certain roles to automatically equate to more important or more valuable. Okay, I'll say that again. The, the paradox that's being presented, which is men and women are equal in a spiritual sense, equal value, equal worth, equally made in the image of God, and yet the male is the head and the female is the helper, that's not really a paradox. Basically, you could just say men and women are equal in a spiritual sense. Men and women are not equal in an unqualified sense. In other words, we're not the same thing. We are intentionally and purposely, purposefully created to be unique. So we're not equal in just an unqualified sense. Okay, and it's not really a paradox if you if you well it, it's only a paradox I should say if you consider certain roles to automatically equate to being more important. So. The man is the leader. So what? Who says that makes him more important? <laughs> right? If I'm the leader of my business, why do you just assume that that means most important? I think um, that perhaps the world has twisted this um, that uh, because of the misuse of authority and leadership and headship in our world, it's automatically baked into our minds that if you are in authority or in leadership or have headship, that you are more important or more powerful or more skilled, right? You're just more valuable, period. And that's just not true. It's not logically true, but it's also not true from a Christian world perspective. We know that our worth is not found in our role, our worth is found in Christ. Okay, that being said, that being said, let's read this section, okay? Um, it's not just, we're not just equal in a matter of mere anatomy, blah, blah, blah. Okay. God has no intention of blurring sexual distinctness in the interest of equality in an unqualified sense. In fact, there are many areas of life in which God has no intention of leveling out the distinctions between us. Consider the obvious. God does not value intellectual or aesthetic equality among people. He does not value equality in finances, talents, and opportunity. It is God who deliberately ordains inequalities in many aspects of our lives. When I came from the, room, from the womb, I had only so much potential for physical, intellectual, and aesthetic development. Some are born with less than I was, others with more. Because God is ultimately the one who shapes our lives, I have to conclude that God is not interested in unlimited equality among us. And because God is also wise, I further conclude that unlimited equality must be a false ideal. But the Bible does teach the equal personhood and value the dignity of all the human race, men, women, and children, and that must be the only equality that matters to God. One measure of our wisdom as God's image bearers is whether we share this perspective with God. One measure of our reconciliation with God is whether his sovereign decrees draw from us a response of worship or resentment. Okay, so think of the, the parable where it talks about the 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 person giving oh gosh what is <laughs> the talents right 10 talents 5 talents 1 talents right the farmer or whatever the owner of the place of the money he gives 10 talents to one person 5 to another 1 to 1 to another person the guy with one goes and buries it and so he brings it back a month later he just has one <laughs> and the guy's really mad at him he's like i gave you one you didn't go and do anything with it unbelievable 
the guy with five, he goes out and invests it or whatever, and I think he makes like two extra ones, and he's pleased, right? You you got five and you made two, good job, right? You will be rewarded with more in my kingdom. And the guy with ten, he makes a gazillion, right? And the guys, the the, the owner says, hey, give the guy with one who only made one, give it to the guy with ten, right? The point being that God has 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 um, endowed certain people with more or less abilities. That's up to God. He's free as the creator to do that. And his only demand is that you do with what you have. You you work give 100% effort to to do the most that you can with what you've been given for the glory of God. Okay? And and equality to God is he doesn't care about what what Ortland's saying here. He doesn't care about equality of endowment, whether you had more talent, more intellectual ability or capacity, more intellectual capacity, more athletic capacity, um, taller, shorter, where you live, right? There, there's there's inequality everywhere in God's ordained creation. And yet God does see equality in one important perspective. And, and it's, the, it's the value and dignity of every person, man, woman, and child, because they're made in the image of God. So there is one aspect of equality that God values and is put into the created order and is very critical. But yeah, God's not, God's not someone who is like, uh, I know I'm not going to make a political joke here, right? But like equity, equality of outcome Obviously, we don't see that. It's, it's impossible to achieve, which is kind of why it's foolish anyway. But just think about how many different aspects of inequality exist. Even with people within my own family, I am a twin, and my older brother is he's physically, you know, appears to be almost more of a twin than me. And and like if you think of the three of us, the differences in talents, abilities, exposure. I mean, like every even the, we think just physical, intellectual, right? Think about how many different variables go into our, quote, umbrella term, endowment from God, we'll say. So if those talents, five talents, ten talents, one talents, represent everything God has given to us, there are variables within that that we don't even know exist and can't even identify. So for us to go, well, actually, I think God actually is pretty much given everyone equals things. Like you wouldn't even be able to measure that. You don't even know all the things that you'd have to measure. And all I'm saying is even amongst the things that we can kind of identify, like, well, he has a little bit higher IQ or he's just a little more physically gifted or more athletic, or he has a way with words, or he can think for longer, more determination. I mean, we could like write down a pretty good list of all those things. And even in my own family where we were given like, equal love from our parents and everything. I mean, you can just see clearly manifestations of of differing levels of talents and abilities. Obviously, I am the most talented and gifted of all of them by far. But I mean, other than that conclusion, you know, it would be hard to draw other conclusions. Ralph, don't take us off the air, okay? That was my last joke. Okay, and so the next part of this is really the part that really oh, just cuts my heart. And, it, and it's connected, I think, to marriage. That's the part that really... It was like, give me chills almost reading about it. Okay, we get to verse 18, right? And and what we have is Adam's all alone, okay? God's saying it's not good for him to be alone. We could just set the stage here, right? Is um, basically, yeah, he's, he's there all alone. Now, now let's, let's read this interesting interpretation from Orland, okay? These are his words again. Surprisingly, oh, wait, sorry, the last verse. Um, where's, oh, yeah, the man needed a helper suitable for him. Right, we get this. There's, there's no one. They're suitable. He's naming all the animals. Right, they're not suitable. 
Surprisingly, however, God did not immediately create this helper. Instead, God paraded the animals before the man for him to name them. Why? Because the man did not yet see the problem of his aloneness. And so God translated the man's objective aloneness into a feeling of personal loneliness by setting him to this task. In serving God, the man encountered his own need. This is so because the task of naming the animals entailed more than just slapping an arbitrary label on each beast. The task required the man to consider each animal thoughtfully so that its name was appropriate to its particular nature. Out of this exercise, it began to dawn on the man that there was no creature in the garden that shared his nature. He discovered not only his own unique superiority over the beasts, which the privilege of naming them in itself implied, he also discovered his own solitude in the world. We may surmise that an aching longing welled up within the man for the companionship of another creature on his level. Wow. Okay, so... (laughs) Let's let's back up. That was pretty awesome. So let's just let's just we'll just roll with him, right? Like maybe God's gonna be like, that's not why I had him go through the task of naming the animals. But but let's just follow that. It is logical, okay? So if we're we're saying Adam didn't really realize that he was alone, God knows he's alone. He <laughs> objectively he's alone. Okay, but he's he's like I'm gonna make the man kind of realize this. So I'll give him a task, and that task is gonna do a couple things. It's going to force him to analyze all these creatures and give them a name that's kind of suitable to their nature. And in doing so, he's gonna realize where's the animal that's like me that I can connect to that's on my level that that shares my nature. And he's kind of realizing, okay, wait a minute, I have the task of naming all these creatures. So that implies that I am superior to them in some way. God's given me dominion over them. Okay. And I'm naming them. So I'm kind of on a different level than the, there's no one like me though. There's no one like me. And so God, now back to Ortland. And so God performs the first surgical operation. And so presumably here, Adam realizes he's alone. Okay. He really has no one to connect to on his level. Um, imagine the scene. <laughs> As the last of the beasts plods off with its new name, the man turns away with a trace of perplexity and sorrow in his eyes. God says, Son, I want you to lie down. Now close your eyes and sleep. The man falls into a deep slumber. The creator goes to work, opening the man's side, removing a rib, closing the wound, and building the woman. There she stands, perfectly gorgeous and uniquely suited to the man's need. The Lord says to her, Daughter, I want you to go stand over there. I'll come for you in a moment. She obeys. Then God touches the man and says, Wake up now, son. I have one last creature for you to name. I'd like to know what you think of this one. And God leads Eve out to Adam, who greets her with a rhapsodic, (laughs) I'm the music person, rhapsody, rhapsody in blue, relief. Okay, Um, Adam says this, this is now bone of my, presumably Adam's looking at Eve, right? Just like blown away. Whoa. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the name woman even, it, it reflects that nature of the, of the creature, just like all the other ones. These are still Ortland's words. These are the first recorded human words, and they are poetry. What do they express? The joy of the first man in receiving the gift of the first woman. This creature alone, Father, out of all the others, this one at last meets my need for a companion. She alone is my equal, my very flesh. I identify with her. I love her. I will call her woman, for she came from man. The man perceives the woman not as his rival, but as his partner, not as a threat because of her equality with himself, but as the one, the only one capable of fulfilling his longing within. 
This primal event explains why we see men and women pairing off today as Moses teaches in verse 24. For this, and it's the next verse, right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The Garden of Eden is where it all started, not in the social evolution of mankind, but in the original pre-fall creation by God. At its very heart, marriage is not a human custom, variable according to changing times. It is a divinely created institution defined for all ages and all cultures in our shared primeval, primeval, perfect existence. And what does marriage mean? What distinguishes this particular social institution? Moses reasons that marriage is the reunion of what was originally and literally one flesh, only now in a much more satisfying form. We would all agree. This is why he who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh. Um, that's from the words of Jesus. Becoming one flesh as husband and wife is symbolized and sealed by sexual union. It is true. But the one flesh relationship entails more than sex. It is the profound fusion of two lives into one, shared life together by the mutual consent and covenant of marriage. It is the complete and permanent giving over of oneself into a new circle of shared existence with one's partner. Lastly, verse 25 seals the creation account with a reminder of the perfection in which Adam and Eve first came together. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame because they had nothing to hide. They lived in perfect integrity together. In the, conscious, in the conspicuous phrase, a helper suitable for him, we encounter the paradox of manhood and womanhood. On the one hand, the woman alone, out of all the creatures, was suitable for him. She alone was Adam's equal. A man may enjoy a form of companionship with a dog but only on the dog's level. With a wife, a man finds companionship on his own level, for she is his equal. Oh, do you feel the chills? I wrote in the margins. This could be a sermon for a wedding, and it should be. Um, because, uh, you know, when, when Christy was walking down the aisle, I remember thinking the, that entire day, um, this, this feeling of that she was a present to me. Like, she was a gift that was given to me. And, you know, like, when you think about Adam, Eve was truly a gift from God to him. I mean, he literally, again, brought him to this place of loneliness. He's got nothing. It's not good for him to be alone. Let me make a helper suitable for you. Eve was literally a creation um, that was going to, that was that was given to him by God and it was a person that he could relate to on his level. Again, companionship with a dog is one thing. Many of us know that. Companionship with a dog can only be done on the dog's level. That's also true. We can't relate to them on our level. That It can only be a wife that can do that. And so this idea of it being a gift, I kind of wrote in, what is marriage? It's when we find our Eve as men, right? It's when we find our Eve. And I think... Now, looking back at that feeling, that original feeling of, well, Christy is like my gift, right? That's been this gift that's been given to me. Um, you know, maybe that's maybe that's the litmus test for for guys out there. Do you know if she's the one? Well, does she feel like your Eve? Did you find her? Right? I don't know. I can't say that because that was a unique feeling I truly felt on the wedding day. I felt like that. Um, and I think this, I mean, the um the fact that it is not just a human custom, it is something that is part of the created order, marriage, 
It's not just something we like created and sort of we stamped God and stamped the Bible and stamped a few verses on it, but it's really just a man-made creation. It's a divine, a divine institution. And then to understand here, as we, as we continue in the study of understanding how the, the very purposeful and intentional um, roles for men and women and how when they are defined properly and pursued properly and biblically on those terms that they actually benefit both parties in a way that is impossible if it's two men or two women, um, you start to realize that's kind of the evidence for it being a divine institution as well. Not just, I mean, the evidence for it being a divine institution is that it's written in Genesis 1. That's evidence enough. But the realization of those evidence, like seeing it played out, is when we see the two become one flesh in the sense that those two roles, um, the, the roles of man and roles of woman, when perfectly harmonized, it's a perfect symphony. Um, and And yes, broken down, not defined well, misused, it is not a harmonization that is a perfect symphony. It's a cacophony. It's the opposite. Um, but but that the the divine nature of marriage really came alive in in that in these two pages as he sort of exegetes two eighteen to two twenty three with some creative flaring color as well. Um, yeah, wow. I I just. I was very moved by reading that, and so maybe if you weren't, you need to go back and re-listen that. But, but um, I thought that was pretty amazing, and and I think the thoughts then too, you, you they sort of shift to when we talk about um, not just the misuse of masculinity and femininity, femininity, but the blatant, um, the blatant destruction of of the marriage institution. Like how much of a rebellion that is against the created order. That's one thing. It's a clear rebellion against the created order as, as in accordance with what the Bible says. No doubt. But how destructive that is for the two people doing it. Because look at how beautiful and intentional God made this institution, man and woman. Right? It's not like he, he there, <laughs> obviously, there wasn't another Adam there. Right? It would have been interesting If there would have been another Adam there for Adam, and God would have said, all right, you can have another one just like you, or you can have the woman. What one do you want, right? And then maybe he chooses the woman, and then God says, that's all right. If he had chosen the other guy, it would have been just the same. And it would have been, um, it would have, everything would have been totally not just fine and not a sin, but it would have turned out just the same for Adam too. Not like I made the, the woman any different. What just as suitable of a helper? Another guy would be just as suitable of a helper. It would have it would have satisfied your longings, satisfied your needs. You know what, Adam? If you would have chosen another Adam, I bet you still would have said, "This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man." Oh wait, no, you couldn't have said that. But <laughs> right, I think that's that should be convicting to people who are standing on the sidelines, thinking, "I am a Christian and I support." homosexual marriage think about like truly the doctrine that is behind god's created order and design for marriage it is profound and complex and beautiful and beneficial too um and as so many things when we go against the created order they they end up in destruction which by the way kind of brings us to the next point here 
what God decreed at the fall. I had a few more points I wanted to get to here. Um, Okay, hold on. Let me think. Uh, Before we get into the fall, there's a few points here kind of detailing that paradox that that, um, I think are worth bringing up. Again, it's better to just read it. Uh, He does bring up the Trinity, the economic Trinity, the ontological Trinity. I should have skipped ahead to his words again and just remembered. In the economic Trinity, uh, within the the Holy Trinity, the Father leads, the Son submits to him, the Spirit submits to both. Um, but it's also true the three persons are fully equal in divinity, power, and glory. That's the ontological trinity. The son submits, but not because he is God Jr. in an inferior deity. All right. Um, so let me just read a couple more phrases here that, that stuck out to me. Question. This is something posed often, I think, by feminists. Must the male headship side of the paradox be construed as an insult or a threat to women? Okay, so... Um, the fact that their head is that a threat to women. Not at all, okay? And here's why. Because Eve was Adam's equal in the only sense in which equality is significant for personal worth. Woman is just as gifted as man with all the attributes requisite to attaining wisdom, righteousness, and life. In a parallel sense, a church member has as much freedom and opportunity to achieve real significance as does a church elder. But the elder is to lead. The member is to support. There is no cause for offense. Okay. Um, that's not the same thing as male domination again. Male domination is not a biblical doctrine. Um, so let's see. Uh, Adam welcomes Eve as his equal, bone of my bones, yet he also names her. So there's a little bit of paradox there, right? Equal, but also Adam has a specific role. The woman was made from the man, her equality, for the man, her inequality. God did not make Adam and Eve from the ground at the same time for one another without distinction. Um, he, did, he could have created them that way. He didn't. So, but in, in that way, he's not obscuring the very nature of manhood and womanhood. Uh, let's note this carefully. In designating her woman, the man interprets her identity in relation to himself out of his own intuitive comprehension of who she is, he interprets her as feminine, unlike himself, and yet as his counterpart and equal. Number five, another signal of the paradox, 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 is detected in verse 24. Because the woman alone is the man's very flesh, their reunion in marriage is a one flesh relationship. Adam could not have joined himself to a lesser creature without degrading himself. But it is the man who leaves his parents to found a new household with his new wife at his side. His wife does not leave her family to initiate the new household. This is the responsibility of the head. Interesting. Um, They share the domination over the earth, dominion over the earth. Um, Okay, then he does some talking about headship, defining that. Again, the final point here. Some feminists were saying hierarchy just equals degradation. So they seem to be reasoning that if there's some, if some subordination is degrading, all subordination must be degrading. And that's not true as we look at the Trinity. That's not degrading the fact that there is um, subordination, subordination in a sense. There is a difference between equal worth and equal rights. What does that mean? Um... Well, surely we have God saying man and woman are equal in worth as image bearers. 
But does a wife possess under God all the rights that her husband has in an unqualified sense? This is kind of coming back to that point. Well, no, because in God's design, it it is the primary responsibility for the husband to lead, provide, and protect. Those are unique rights for him, whereas the unique rights for the woman are to nurture, affirm, right? Uh, nurture, affirm, and what was the other one? I guess affirm. Ah, I can't remember. That was from our other chapter, chapter one. To receive. Thank you, Ralph. To receive. To, re, to, aff, to first affirm, to receive, and then to nurture and support. That is the unique unique rights of the female. All right, so let's, get, let's talk about the fall a little bit. So basically, this this sort of starts off by saying, in a sense, that one of the arguments is that this idea of male headship or sinful male domination is something that is decreed at the fall. And we know now, walking through pre-fall, <laughs> pre-fall chapter one and chapter two, that clearly this is part of the created order. I think I'm just going to leave it at that because we're getting close to an hour. I want to make see if I can get this under an hour, but we can just rebut that by saying, look at chapter one, look at chapter two, walk them through those verses and clearly God's intent and design um, in responsibility and role and distinction is a pre-fall thing. But we do have the fall in chapter three, okay? And there is kind of this point brought out in the fall that what Eve really does, this is kind of coming from um, Orton, what's his name? Orton Blad, Johnny Orton, uh, Ortland Jr. Okay, what happened at the fall? Um, there, there's a real importance to chapter three in this debate, especially the fall, especially verses sixteen through nineteen. Uh, and the reason is, is the key phrase here uh, brought up. It is verse. Well, first I'll back up. In verse six, what essentially is happening is. Eve is being deceived by the serpent. The serpent is deceiving her in a way, basically bringing her to feel this aggravation of some sort of injustice, which really does not exist, right? That God is hiding, that God's threatened by the two of them, that if he were to eat, the, if she, it's kind of unfair that, that she can't, you know, think on her own, right? And, and reason on her own completely outside of God. And this truth is... Um, you know, it's some sort of injustice that, that really doesn't exist. Eve is truly being deceived. And so in verse six of chapter three, it's very important to note what is said and what is not said. What is said is, um, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. What does it not say? It doesn't say she took some and ate it. Her husband who was with her also took some and ate it. Why does this matter? So the difference is in the in the actual verse it says Adam, her husband, who was with her, and what it doesn't say is um, her husband, who was with her, also took some and ate it. Okay, wow, that's a really finite distinction. I don't know if you caught it there, but in the Bible it says she also gave some to her husband. It doesn't just say Adam was there and he decided to have some too. Okay, 
The reason that's important is because what was going on here is this <laughs> sexual role reversal. Eve sort of usurps Adam's headship, leads the way into sin. Okay, that's one that is a sin there, but you know, Eve give Eve being deceived is is unfortunate, <laughs> okay? The sin is disobeying God by taking the, what she wasn't supposed to clearly, right? But the other sin there is she is and maybe this, it's not like there's two sins there. I guess I guess you could in in one sense say, well, there are two sins here. But but um, I don't I don't know if Orton is Ortonland is is trying to say that. I think what's what in my head I'm thinking. No, the sin is disobedience to God. But look at how the distortion of the created order plays a role. Okay, so the sin Eve is deceived and therefore disobeys God. But in doing so, usurps Adam's headship. You know, she gives him the apple, leads him into the sin, okay? Now, Adam's not out of it at all, by any means. In fact, because he's the head, he has a primary responsibility of spiritual leadership, and that plays out in God's response. But what Adam does is also disobeys God. He still takes the apple and eats it. That's disobeying God. So, like, the same sin is happening there. And the distortion here is Adam's like the deadbeat guy, right? And I didn't even really, you know— the words where Adam is there, right? She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Like the, the recreation of the scene, maybe there's not enough details to fully imagine it, but you can kind of imagine Adam just standing there, not being a good leader, right? Not being a good provider protector. This would be a time when you should probably protect your wife, right? From the evil serpent. And he just was passive and kind of a deadbeat. He wasn't discerning and thinking, huh, this might be a bad spirit, a spiritual move here, right? Not just physical protection. Like, think about spiritual protection for his household, right? He's allowing Eve to just be deceived here in this moment. Now, you could argue, well, yeah, but Adam didn't really know any difference. But, you know, because Adam, Adam, Adam would have been deceived just as well. That might be true. But that, and if we, if we place ourselves in a similar situation just today in our sinful fallen world, Let's just say that, you know, it's me and Christy, and, and Christy's being deceived by some wild, crazy, sinful, spiritual message. If I'm standing by passively because I can't discern that it's a spiritually messed up message, that's also my fault. That's on, my, that's on me. It's not like I can go to God and go, well, God, I, I didn't understand your doctrines well enough to, to determine that that was false teaching. That's your responsibility as the man. Okay, you are the spiritual the spiritual leader in your family, or you 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 bear the responsibility of it. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to always be smarter than your wife or smarter than the woman. It means you have the responsibility for it. If you're in a household where your wife is like theologian PhD and you're kind of like struggling Christian, you still have the responsibility of the overall spiritual leadership in that family, and you need to feel that pressure. That doesn't mean you need to overcome and be better than, more talented than, ace the test with a higher score, the, the theology test than your wife does. It means you bear that responsibility. That's, that's key. And so I think in this moment here, yeah, Adam didn't tap. Maybe he, did, maybe he lacked the discernment because he lacked the knowledge to realize what was happening. Doesn't matter. Still falls on him. God, God points that out too. He, and and um, why does why does Paul blame Adam for our fall in five, in Romans five twelve through twenty one? Why doesn't Adam blame both Adam and Eve? Why does Genesis three seven say that it was only after Adam joined in the rebellion that the eyes of both of them were opened to their condition? Why does God call to Adam, "Where are you?" in Genesis three nine? Why doesn't God summon both Adam and Eve to account together? 
And the reason, because as the God-appointed head, Adam bore the primary responsibility to lead their partnership in a God-glorifying direction. And he kind of points out this might be why Satan went after Eve. You know, he's clever beyond what we even recognize here. You know, it's he's going to address the second in command. And if, it have, if the roles had been reversed, he would have gone to Adam, basically. But what he's doing, he's striking at Adam's headship. Okay, it's it's uh, it had the effect of inviting Eve to assume this primary responsibility at that moment of temptation. You decide, Eve. You lead the way. Wouldn't you rather be exercising headship? Um, and so Satan, and and this is continuing on. Maybe Satan himself felt that sort of um pressure or temptation. His own line of reasoning, you know, to couldn't I be the headship here before his own fall? Um. And so I think it's maybe gone a little too far to think that like in Eve's heart, she's thinking, yeah, I should be the head, right? Maybe that is true. And maybe verses 16 through 19 um, argue that that is. When we look at the punishment that's given upon Eve and being first pain in childbirth, right? That's important. There's a new element, not just childbirth, but the pain. But second, the, the key suffering to Eve here is a suffering in relation to her husband. And there's some debate here, but I think it's worth it's worth uh, if, for being consistent that God sort of does like a Romans 1 here to Eve and gives the woman up to the desire to have her way with her husband. She usurped the headship and the temptation. God hands her over to that. Oh, you want to be the head? Go for it. Now you're going to struggle for the rest of time with this competition of being the rightful head, right? It's kind of a justice measure for measure response to that. And so, um, and, and he brings up two two possible interpretations. First, it might be that God might be saying, essentially, you're going to have a desire, Eve. You will want to control your husband, right? But he must not allow you to have your way with him. He must rule over you, okay? And in this case, we would take rule as the exercise, um, or in, in this sense, God's requiring the man to act as the head God made him to be, rather than knuckle under to ungodly pressure from his wife, okay? So... Accordingly, your desire will be for your husband, but he must rule over you. In this case, we would take rule as the exercise of godly headship. So this interpretation sort of matches the reasoning that comes later in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. But there's other another view that he mentions, um, these two interpretations of 3.16. It says, God may be saying, you will have a desire, Eve. You will want to control your husband, but he will not allow you to have your way with him. He will rule over you. If this is the true sense, then in giving the woman up to her insubordinate desire, God is penalizing her with domination by her husband. Accordingly, 316b should be rendered, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The word rule would now be construed as the exercise of ungodly domination. As the woman competes with the man, the man, for his part, always holds the trump card of male domination to put her in her place. No matter how we interpret this, one thing that can't be changed is that male headship is an aspect of pre-fall perfection. Okay? Um, and so Christ, the, the redemption, it's not going to redefine creation. It restores creation. So wives learn uh, godly submission and husbands learn godly headship. That's key. Um, kind of tricky there, but I think hopefully that made sense, that relationship to in the actual sin, Eve sort of goes above Adam and, and, and has this sexual role reversal, so to speak. Um, and it's interesting how 
this is Orton's words again. Isn't it striking that we we fell upon an occasion of sex role reversal? Are we to repeat this confusion forever? Are we to institutionalize it in evangelicalism in the name of the God who condemned it in the beginning? Pretty strong argument, right? If if what we're seeing happen in the fall is Eve usurping Adam, changing roles, right? Maybe even unknowingly, but if that's happening and then God going, okay, that's what you want. Well, now that's that's going to be what you struggle with now, right? You're going to always want to compete with your husband for this um, role of leadership. I've created you to have a perfect role in, in you as woman, but you don't want that. You want his job and you're now going to struggle with that. Man, of course, gets punished as well. He has four specific things um, that come his way as well. Uh, let's see, let's see. Obviously, the ground is cursed, so he's going to work. He still was working. Working was good. Remember, we talked about this in our other skeologians a few weeks ago, back in March, where work is a good thing ordained by God, but now there's going to be pain and toil. Okay, another another topic. If you want to want to talk about that, you can or listen about that. You can go back and find our show on the theology of work. The new is the new element is the pain, uh, and then he has the rationale. God does not say because you have eaten of the tree. God does say because you listen to your wife and ate from the tree. Adam sinned at two levels. Can we kind of come back to that, right? Is It's not listening to your wives isn't the sin, right? It's abandoning the post as the head. That was the sin, okay? We do need to listen to our wives. Okay, that's a whole nother topic, a whole nother different context of it. It's abandoning post as head, abandoning the post as the head and the leader there. That was that was the thing that is getting pointed out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, fourth point, God told Adam alone that he would die, but Eve died too. Why then did God pronounce the death sentence on Adam alone? Because as the head goes, so goes the member. Okay. I think the concluding appeal, I think we can go to our final point here, wrap this up. Concluding appeal from this chapter. One, male, female equality, and male headship properly defined are woven into the very fabric of Genesis 1-3. to Um... And two, there's no necessary relation between personal role and personal worth. And that's something that feminism, feminism is going to deny. <clears throat> I kind of wrote my notes here. What are some reasons I wonder why they would deny this? I think we kind of hit on them a little bit. It's the distortion, the sin, obviously, that's the root issue. But what we're seeing manifest itself is leadership and dominion and headship when misconstrued and turned into domination and sinful authority and just, I want to get my way, it becomes something I think that all humans envy and all humans want. And ultimately, it's, it's, it's a thing where men and women place their worth in their role. They think their role determines their worth. So if that's true, then we, we have to all have the same roles because otherwise we won't be equal. And I can't even see a, a biblical argument there, right? If, if God's created us equally and our roles define our worth, Right, or it, so I say this, if God's created us with equal worth and whatever role we have defines our worth, well, then our roles should be equal. And that would make sense. Here's the problem. God has created us with equal worth. God has also created us with different roles. And he has determined that our roles do not determine our worth and our value. Our identity is found in Christ. Our value and worth is found in us being made in the image of God. So therefore, the two things can coexist. One, that we are valuable, equally valuable to God, 
and yet have different roles. So I, I, that's just my take is when we see as, as a sinful world, we look out there, we see people um, who have placed their identity and their power and their authority and their job position in what they're doing. <clears throat> and then we follow them into that trap. Well, of course, we're going to envy that too, because we're going to be placing our identity in something other than what is real and what, what we should be placing our identity in. And so we clamor. It's a power grab. That's what it's led to. And really the ironic part is, the power grab that this type of reasoning, an unbiblical reasoning, um, because it's it's not saying that our worth is found in our personal conformity to Christ, the power grab there, it's the premise the, that the feminist has is the same thing upon which male domination is founded. Essentially, that personal significance is measured according to whatever rung you are on the ladder. So, the opportunity for personal fulfillment is going to grow or shrink according to that role. That's what the feminist is is trying to um, cling to, is I need to have the ability to have this role. I need to have the ability to have this function, okay? Because that's where my identity is placed. That's the same thing that male domination is. That's that clamoring for power and the struggle for power, the power grab, sinful male domination. They're trying to do the same thing that um, they're also trying to defeat in essence because they don't like male domination. They don't want that, right? And we don't want male domination either. We want a Christian view of biblical headship. Huge difference. All right. So that's chapter three. Oof, duh. super meaningful chapter. I hope you enjoyed it. hope you enjoyed this show. Again, I hope you are reading this book along with us. A um, lot of good discussion points there. If you're not reading the book, hopefully that summary was edifying to you. A really important topic. I would encourage you to look into it more, especially well, at whatever stage you're at. Um, maybe you're like me, you're a um, young, new, soon-to-be dad who is going to need to raise up and explain to their children the definitions, proper biblical definitions of male and female in a confusing world where those things are construed, distorted, and, and ignored, quite frankly, to the, de- to the detriment of society altogether. Um, maybe you're, maybe you're also in my position thinking you need to develop your own masculine, mature, mature masculinity. What does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to protect and provide? What should that look like? What should my relationship with my wife be so that it's beneficial for both of us? How can I develop servant leadership and that love and protection? All those things. Maybe you're there. Maybe you are a church leader though, and you are, you're trying to guide a church. This is a a tricky topic there as well. And you want to follow the Bible and follow God's word and and you need more understanding. I think this book serves those positions as well. <clears throat> Old, young, this book is uh, the principles for everyone. It has massive consequences. So there it is, folks. We will talk about chapter four next week on Skeelers. Hot racing, keep pacing, losing taste.